0: Hi, my name is Rachel Endo. My kids were abducted to Japan from August 20th, 2019 to February 5th, 2020. I got them back from um, I got them back through unconventional means by doing the habeas corpus in Tokyo High Court for approximately 5 months and this is my story. <laughs>
1: Be just like me, you're double. double. All
2: you have to do is ask to see your family. You have so much to say.
1: In this episode of Your Double Podcast, we are speaking to Rachel Endo. Her story is somewhat unique when it comes to this podcast, as she is the first guest to ever reunite with her kids after being abducted by a Japanese ex husband. How she did that is rather unconventional, and we will talk about it through this episode. Now, before we get to the episode, I would like to inform all our listeners that Glenn Wood, someone we have had in this podcast before, is retrying his paternity harassment or Patahara case in the Tokyo High Court this September. Recently, I had another chance to talk to him about the harassment that he had gone through while he was at uh, Mitsubishi Morgan Stanley. And here's a quick soundbite from that particular conversation.
2: So after I told my bosses that, you know, my, my son was about to die, it was really life or death situation and I needed to go right away. As I mentioned, the, the reaction was quite shocking to me that They just said, you know, kind of sit down and get back to work. And that began that began a long process of discussions and and conversations and eventually harassment. But, um, you know, I I approached them. I stayed at the company after that for for several days, even though the hospital was saying I needed to come right away. And I talked with my bosses in detail about, you know, kind of what was happening and why I needed to, to go and uh i explained the paternity leave system in japan which which is uh, a legal right of japanese men and women um and still they they really wouldn't wouldn't budge and they started to make up excuses and they they started to ask about um you know the paternity of of my son and whether i was really the father and and things like that and eventually as as you know they required a dna test um, which, which to me was was quite shocking. Um, you know, if you think about it, at the end of the day, what 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 does an employee have to gain about lying about a child? <laughs> it, it it really doesn't make any sense. And um, you know, so I I that that, that began kind of the long long term harassment of of the situation. Eventually, I just had to leave uh, because um, I felt I really had to be there for my family and. You know, while I was away, uh, the communication was rather sparse. I continued to call and tried to communicate with the company, but um, even from the beginning, uh, they they felt that my action as a man uh, by taking time off in an, in a family emergency, they really felt that was treasonous, and um, I was doing something as as uh, a man working for a company that I wasn't supposed to do. I was the property of the company. And uh, regardless of whether a family member was dead or alive, that didn't matter. I was to be there at my desk. And so um, eventually, uh, thankfully, my son recovered and he was released from the hospital. Um, And when I returned to work, then uh, it began another long series of harassment. Basically, uh, the first day back to work, my boss told me that my job had been taken away from me. I was no longer able to do my job, and uh, I was to basically sit at my desk and and do work, which is rather secretarial in nature, to be honest. and uh, that went on. Um, you know, I would try to call my bosses, they wouldn't answer the phone. I sent emails that weren't responded to. Um, I tried to speak with hr um, and and they gave me again the the cold shoulder wouldn't speak with me. Or they gave me um, very dismissive type of comments, like uh just go just go and talk to so and so and see if you can do something you know they, they wouldn't take the issue seriously and uh, eventually it, you know it, it got it got so bad that you know I'd show up for a meeting and the meeting had been cancelled or they changed the room of the meeting and didn't tell me about it and you know it was quite pedantic actions really, from a Western perspective. Um, that you would never expect in, in a professional setting. Um, and as I mentioned, eventually uh, I was fired. Uh, they reduced, they tried in, in between the, the, that time and the time I was fired, they reduced my compensation. They they gave me a, a basically no bonus and they made excuses for that, even though my performance was exceptionally good. And at the end of the day, uh, as I mentioned, they, they fired me um, for what uh, and the reason they fired me was because they said I was lying, that I'd made up the whole story <laughs> and 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 that anybody who lied uh, could be fired was their reasoning.
1: So that was Glenn Wood explaining the kind of harassment that he went through at Mitsubishi Morgan Stanley. If you would like to support him, you can go to findmyparent.org slash Glenn for more details on his case. It will be awesome if you're in Japan and you can attend his court case. It is happening on the September 10th from 2 p.m. at courtroom number 822, Tokyo High Court. Now, without further ado, let's get to the episode with Rachel Endo.
0: Okay, yeah. Um, so, my story is kind of, it's not so straightforward. Um, and that's kind of the beauty of the system for the Japanese because they... They purposely make it convoluted and confusing so that it doesn't seem like as big as an atrocity as it is. So um, what happened for me was um, my ex-husband, now ex-husband, he was my husband at the time, um, he was awarded uh, a visitation. In Japan for six weeks in the summer. So we had gone through a custody battle in America. Um, I'm American, by the way, and he is Japanese. And we went through the custody battle in America and I got physical custody and we had tiebreaker legal custody between the two of us. And they gave him a six week visitation in the summer in Japan. Now our divorce wasn't final. So somehow he was able to convince the courts to do custody first and then finish the divorce later. Um, And because the divorce wasn't finalized in Japan, custody isn't really um, written down until the divorce is done. So until divorce is finalized, both parents have 50-50 custody. Um, So he knew that if he could just get them in Japan, and register them at his home and his address, then I would become an editor. And any attempt, even though I had 50% legal custody in Japan, uh, any attempt I make to see or be near the children would be like violating a protective order in essence. Um, I'm not exactly sure why they consider it like violating a protective order because what happens is if I would try to approach the children and I'm not physically living with them and they are uncomfortable with it and they, or my husband is uncomfortable with, with it to the point that they notify the police, the police, in order to like, snuff any kind of conflict, the police would make me leave. And if I did not cooperate, then I'm like violating a law or something along those lines because they just want everything to be peaceful all the time. So, once he had them there, just for the short six weeks, he registered them in school without including my name. He registered them living with him without including my name. And when the six weeks visitation was up, he didn't return them to America like he was supposed to in the American court order agreement. And so i um I had expected it actually, and knowing you know knowing how my husband was already, I had figured it out after being married for 10 years, how he worked. I I, knew, I expected all of it. So I went there expecting to get, um, arrested or ostracized or whatever things, any things he was planning. I expected something tricky or devious. So I went there and tried to go to the school. And, um, uh, because, um, I, I knew I couldn't go to his address but uh, I went to the school and they, um, they wouldn't let me see the kids. Uh, they put on this very kind front. Um, they told me to just wait in the room, in, a, in the back room. And in that time, while I was waiting, they were notifying my ex-husband. And then he was notifying his lawyer and possibly the police. This is the first time I'm referring to the first time I came. Um, but, uh, when I came again, the police got involved and he did, he did definitely did call the police and tried to get me arrested. So it's, it's very confusing, uh, because in Japan, they blur the lines between domestic violence and child abuse. So if a spouse claims that they're being abused verbally or mentally, they are also saying that that's child abuse where in America and maybe other countries, they don't blur those lines. So in order to abduct the children, they don't even have to claim that there's being direct child abuse. They just say, well, I'm being abused by myself. Therefore, the children are being abused. Therefore, they can't come near the children. And the only time you can get away with coming towards your children or near your children is if they don't scream. But usually at that point, the other parent has Told many scary or crazy things to the children to make the children think that the other parent is dangerous. And at the moment they see their 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 parent after being separated for weeks, if not months, if not years, they're they're thoroughly scared, very very like authentically frightened of their parent and deathly afraid. And they will run and they will scream. And um, if it's it's funny, it's weird because that's from my, what I've heard. Um, that's like specifically cited in the laws that if the children like scream, then it's suddenly illegal to, to take the children with you. But if they go willingly and quietly, then it's not illegal. So, uh, from that point, my husband uh, said he couldn't return the children because he didn't want to return to America. And then from that point, it was essentially an abduction. Um, I, I think uh, when I would call it a kidnapping, even by American terms, it wasn't, they didn't consider it a kidnapping because they went with him on court order originally. So it was also a little blurred there um, in in claiming how the severity of the law being broken because he had permission to take them originally. Um, and then, so he didn't bring them back. And then I had to, after I flew there to try and see them and try to recover them, And failed, I flew back to America for the hearing. Um, The divorce hearing was continuing. And at that point, that hearing was the judge had ordered him to appear in person and return the children. And of course, he didn't show up. And then um, I flew back to Japan and I got myself a Japanese lawyer who filed what was called a habeas corpus instead of hague. And I was able to recover the children after... It was uh, seven months total we were separated. So it was about maybe five or six months later, I got the kids back through using habeas Corpus. So I got them back. um, They were officially abducted August 20th of 2019. And I got them back February, I think it was, I think it was February 5th of 2020.
1: Thank you for giving us a quick summary of what happened with you and your ex-husband, Rachel. I would like to get deeper into some of the things that you mentioned, and I hope that it is okay with you. Now with that said, can you explain why you mentioned that you had an intuition that he is going to abduct your children? What caused that
0: intuition? What what sparked the conflict in our marriage was that he was being unfaithful. And I found out later and when I found that out, I also did more digging and discovered that he was also plotting to keep them. And he was saying things, keep the children. And he was saying things along the lines, well, I'll wait until they're 10 years old and then um, and then get divorced and things like that. Now, I didn't know at the time, but Japan has this thing called, uh, I think, the tender age law. And if they're under 10, the courts tend to award the children to the mother. So. I didn't realize at the time when I was reading that, but in retrospect I realized, okay, this is clearly him plotting. You know, he he looked up laws, he looked up what judges look for and he realized, okay, if they're 10 or older, not only do I not need my wife for babysitting or looking after the kids, but I'll more likely be awarded them because of the tender age law. So, um so I noticed I saw things like that, um and Um, before they, before they left for their, um, visitation, their summer visitation, he was not agreeing to, he was not, um, doing anything to help facilitate me and the girls to stay and live in America. So he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't, um, do mediation. For finalizing the finances. He cut the lease to our home and he knew I had nowhere to live with the children. He wouldn't agree. So once he got the tiebreaker legal custody, he wouldn't agree for the children to continue their counseling. Um, the older daughter was already seeing a counselor and he suddenly retracted that permission. He um he was just playing these mind games. So, for example, I had set up an appointment with the dentist. And I asked, I had to get his permission for my daughter to have a tooth removed from the dentist. And he wouldn't agree to her having her tooth removed from the dentist, even though she needed it for her health. But then I came to find out that he contacted the dentist and gave the permission directly to the dentist. So you kept playing these mind games. And I'm like, well, if, you know, he's accepted this ruling, this American ruling where I have physical custody and they visit him, why is he doing these mind games? And um uh also before they left, he said he spent like eleven thousand dollars to get their school supplies ready for their six-week visit in Japan. And my thinking is why do you need to invest eleven thousand dollars on new shoes and a school uniform if the children are only going to go to school for six weeks during their visit? And why do they even need to go to school at all? Because this is supposed to be like their summer vacation. So there were lots of signs but more than anything else i could just tell from my instincts and how he behaved and w- what he was saying and how he was still making it out like having custody was this competition or this you know this um it is a game to him and it it was it was breaking my heart and it was just disturbing and breaking my heart how he was just constantly using the children as these pawns and that was just my number one my number one indicator but i couldn't cite i can't cite that you know to a judge or to anyone else really i can't distinctly say you know well he things like he said he he got angry at miyu for not holding up the cake to the camera during skype right just to upset me right things just little it's just little mind games he was playing things like that it was her birthday uh and i said to him before me you came in front of the camera i said i'm going to sing happy birthday to our daughter miu um i'd like to include you so i'm going to bring the cake in to the camera during skype and he said no no i don't i don't have to do that and i'm like why wouldn't you want to sing happy birthday to your daughter, I'm thinking. So I did it anyway. I just, I had Miu come for her call for her dad and brought the cake in and i was singing and he wouldn't sing. Instead, he yelled at Miu to hold up the cake so he could see it. And just these these little things, these little mind games he was doing just to, you know, <clears throat> destabilize me or destabilize the children and cause confusion and chaos. Um you know, just, just to make me look like an unhinged mom, which he wouldn't need to do anymore if he had accepted the custody agreement that was already settled. So I knew he was still trying to alter things or, you know, mess with things and, um, like little things like that, you know, you can't really explain to the judge, or if you did, you'd have to have an extensive report telling like this, 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 this. And things like, you know, how you would hang up the calls, like the girls if they had to go to the bathroom during their Skype calls. Because once, once uh, he left America, we finished the custody February 28th and he left America March 1st. And I was also ordered to do Skype calls between then and their visit in the summer. And when we would do Skype calls, he would do little tricks like uh, when the girls would call um, and they had to go use a bathroom during the call, he would hang up the call to say that the call was. Too short, and that I was denying him proper time with the children. So he just little tricks like that. I could tell that he was playing these mind games, and that he was not accepting. He was not accepting the custody orders.
1: You know, when parents separate, there are a lot of ways to make sure that the marriage ends amicably without jeopardizing the kids in any sort of way. Throughout my experience hosting this podcast, I've been curious about why people decide to go with things like abduction and alienation and so on. So, Rachel. According to your opinion, why do you think he decided to abduct the kids instead of having a shared custody arrangement with you? I know I'm asking for your opinion and these are not based on facts. But if he wants to get on the podcast and explain his thinking, I'd be more than happy to speak with him. Now, with that said, Rachel, why do you think he did that?
0: Oh, well, I definitely think it was it was money um, more than anything else. Uh, probably a, a big part also was pride. But, um, and just the fact that he probably knew or felt he could get away with it i mean just the fact that the japanese laws give absolute power to, absolute power to one parent over the other it makes it, it opens that door for the possibility for someone to just do to just totally crush the other person and it's like well if i can do that why not right if you are a kind of person that doesn't mind exploiting people and you have this perfect opportunity to do it they're you know you're going to take it and that's i think in my opinion a Big part of why they do that, and some just Japanese law it seems is the ones that allow this sort of thing, and I think originally it was there, it was there and it was meant to be helpful to the weaker person, the victim, um, it possibly or probably you know true domestic violence victims in the past that just had no resources or nowhere to turn, and this is their only option, and in those cases, maybe the this is justified, or this is how to enact justice for them. But it's it's been exploited. It's just it's been around so long that people have realized, hey, this is something I can just do for fun, or if I want to, or I'm not happy with the situation, even even if I'm happy with that person, I just want to improve my situation and I can do it. So let's do it, you know, and it's just become normalized for the For the lawyers, and once once a Japanese person talks to a lawyer, and the lawyer is like, "Look, this you just do this, follow this script, and you can have exactly everything you want," you know. And all right, well, if I can. Why not?
1: Very early on on this podcast, you mentioned that the judge ordered him to be present during the court hearing, but then he chose not to attend. And you were there. It seems to me, listening in from the outside, that there is a big gap in the law. And how it is enforced, do you think that is the case?
0: Yes, well, this is this was a really big issue for me. Um, <clears throat> because um before they left, I like i said i I just knew he wasn't going to bring them back. I could just tell from his attitude and his actions and his his everything, and um, so I was trying to prevent their visit uh, i had I had an expert witness. Um she was um a Hague convention lawyer and she testified how Japan is essentially a black hole. And I had a um a motion to alter or amend the custody order so that they would not go visit in the summer. And the judge um just didn't she just couldn't believe she I I think she had this impression of Japan that everybody has that Japan is this wonderful fun, loving kawaii place, you know, and um, and that they're very respectful. And so she couldn't, the judge could not imagine that that the Japanese would not listen to the judge. So the judge ordered the children to visit and I knew probably better than the judge that she had no power over the children once they're gone. And um You know, uh, my ex argued in court that uh, that Japan had signed the Hague and that you know because of the Hague that the children would have to be returned, and even submitted like you know flyers about the Hague Convention and things um, that that were found at the Japanese embassy. So the judge felt, I think, um, falsely that she did have some kind of power over the children being returned, because she even. she she even made a, a like a intimidating comment to my ex saying you know if Mr Endo doesn't return the children uh, he'll never see them again so I think he's a smart man and he'll know to bring the children back so I think she just had this false sense of security and didn't understand the laws and how they worked even though I had a witness come and testify to how Japan circumvents these things um it was just unbelievable false sense of security i think so i um you know i had in the original custody hearing argued they wouldn't come back she still ruled that they should go for 6 weeks and then that ruling was made february 28th and then i had another hearing cuz i put in a motion to alter or amend and we had another hearing i think it was may 20th And um, it was interesting because Japan had just been taken off the blacklist, uh, maybe like a week before that hearing, for child abduction. And um, the article, even the article that they submitted as evidence was written by Kyoto News, which was interesting because my ex worked for Kyoto News. So um, he's a journalist for Kyoto News. He was and still is. And they turned in, as evidence, this article by Kyoto News saying that Japan was off the blacklist, which they were. But I'm sure it was um, not justified. They were not justifiably taken off the blacklist. So the judge held the order for them to go to Japan for six weeks in the summer. Um, so, OK, so what, what, what happened was is we had the custody hearing throughout February. It was decided at the end of February, February 28th. He left March 1st. He was in Japan from March 1st till June 28th, um, which was the day that I was supposed to hand over the children. So he flew back to America to collect the children on June 28th. So we had a, a motion in May 20th that he called in over phone. And then he came in person June 28th. So he was, he was here and um then he left with the children and was ordered when he didn't return them august 20th which the day he was supposed to bring them he was ordered to appear and he didn't so he knew once he was out of the country with the children he was scot-free and um he didn't have to you know he didn't have to listen to that because as long as he is as long as he doesn't come back to america he doesn't have anything to worry about and that's you know also you know with the money too, because he moved all of his money from America to Japan and he had no assets here anymore. And he knew uh, even now I have a, a child support order and a settlement order in America that he's not honoring at all. And there's no way for us to enforce it because he moved all the money from America to Japan and we have no control over his assets in Japan. So he knew there would be no repercussions as long as he never came back to America. And he was okay with that. And um, he was ordered by the judge to come back. He didn't. Uh, he tried to say that he was afraid he'd be arrested if he came back, um, which, you know, it, it's it's ridiculous. But that was, you know, he was ready to say that excuse that he couldn't come back because he'd be arrested. But he wouldn't be in trouble if he just came back. But he knew he knew to make it look... Uh, like he was scared or uh, some kind of victim. Um, And in Japan, from my understanding, civil court has no repercussions. There's no punishment. There's no repercussions in civil court if you violate an order. In fact, my, um, my court hearings in Japan, I had a court order which was never officially stamped and made public. Um, but through the habeas Corpus and our hearings in Japan, they issued a order, um, that my ex had to return the children. And if he didn't, he would be fined 500 yen per day, which is kind of ridiculous. It's just, it's like $5 per day for kidnapping kids. And, uh, and, um, it said also that he would be arrested though. I'm not exactly certain. I can, pr- I can give you the the paper actually. Um, if you want to look it over, it's in Japanese and I don't fully understand it, but apparently it's supposedly he was ordered to return the children return. Uh, he was ordered to come to court with the children. And if the children did not come home with me or he didn't bring the children that they would arrest him, but I'm not sure what would happen if he didn't even show up. Like, would he even be arrested? I don't know. Um, but typically, there is no repercussions for civil court. There is no consequences. But this, the habeas corpus, from my understanding, is a last resort, and it's the only exception where it does cross over from civil to criminal. But even then, the the monetary punishment was only 500 yen a day. It was five dollars a day, which is like, it's like nothing. I mean, compared to I spent like $200,000 in legal fees to get my kids back. And, um, he just has to pay 500 yen a day. It's Nuts. But, um, so yeah, there's, there's no, they don't have any, they don't take anything seriously. They don't take, uh, other countries laws and systems seriously. They, they, they're in their own little worlds, and they're happy with that. They're okay because they think that their their world and their island is better. It's the best, and it's better than every other country's systems. And that's okay if if you know the other the rest of the world doesn't understand, they they're happy or he he is anyway, at least specifically, my ex is happy to just stay in Japan forever. Um, and the other the rest of the world doesn't understand. So it's okay if he doesn't have to ever you know, meet them or confront them ever again. So It's, it's also about confrontation, like Japanese culture just avoids confrontation at all costs. It seems that's just culturally how they are, I think. And, um, you know, if, if it requires being deceitful or lying or going behind your back, that's all right. As long as you avoid, you know, actual face-to-face conversation, um, actual face-to-face confrontation. So, um. This is how they, they tend to do it. They just say, it's okay to lie if in the end you can avoid confrontation.
1: Rachel, you keep mentioning Haber's corpus helped you to reunite with your kids. Can you explain what is that all about and how exactly Haber's corpus helped you in this situation?
0: Okay, so well, um, I'm not, I don't fully understand it myself, but I can try and explain it as best I, as, as best I can. Um, Okay. So yeah, so habeas Corpus, from my understanding, it's, um, I I think it's a law that it's perhaps like internationally used and many countries have it and use it as well. And it's been around for a long time. Um, I think it literally means, let me see, I can look it up real quick here. So it's, it's against the law to retain someone against their will. And it's, arguing that my children are being retained against their will and that's illegal. And, um, the Hague actually in Japan, um, the typical, uh, order of things is you would file the Hague and if you win, the children would be, or I should say the parent is ordered to return the children, um, the children to the other parent. Uh, but like in James Cook's case, the, um, the retaining parent did not comply, so she didn't she didn't bring the children back, and there was no mechanism to go take the to take the children. So if they just don't listen, then there's no consequence. So this happened, I knew um, to James Cook several times. Um, and then the next step would be to file habeas corpus, which is considered a last resort where then it's considered illegal to continue to retain the children. So, uh, James Cook probably would have done that next if the judges hadn't changed their ruling. Um, and there are other cases of other parents I heard where they tried to move on to the step of habeas Corpus and they still got thwarted somehow, unfortunately. But in my case, I argued, my lawyer argued that we had grounds to skip the Hague uh, saying that if he was going to return the children voluntarily, he would have done so already. because if we win Hague, he would have to voluntarily return them. And so we argued it, this we are at last resort already because we had already finished custody in America. And if Mr. Endo is not happy with that order, he has to argue it in American court. So um he had already agreed, essentially, to jurisdiction in America by participating in the custody battle in America that we, we had completed. And therefore, we need to retain jurisdiction there, and he needs to complete and argue custody there. Um, the dangerous thing also with The Hague is that you're not supposed to argue, argue custody, but they can try and argue that because child abuse is present, we need to revisit uh, the question of custody. and. That's where things get, I guess, dangerous for the left behind parent because then they can argue well, the only exception to the Hague is child abuse and spouse abuse is child abuse in Japan. So we need to discuss custody again. And then in that case, typically they would side with the Japanese. Um, So uh, we also wanted to avoid that. So my lawyer decided that the smartest thing to do is to rightfully so argue we can't do Hague. Hague will not work in our case anyway. Um, we need to go straight to Habis Corpus because we're already at the last resort stage. And habeas Corpus is supposed to be quick, probably only supposed to take about a month. And it still took me um, a total of seven months to get the kids back. That's, that's why we took the path of habeas corpus and um, why it did work out for me is partly for that reason. Um, there were a couple of factors that worked in my favor is one that we had already done custody in America. It had already been decided. He had already participated and accepted, essentially, um, legally had accepted the ruling. Um, so that was one. Two, we skipped the Hague and went to habeas corpus. And three, because my ex had a job that he did not want to lose, he did not want to be labeled officially a criminal. So he returned the children a day before the orders were made official. And therefore, he was never a criminal in Japan and was able to keep his job. But in other cases, if it's the mother and she's not worried about losing a job, then she doesn't care if she's labeled a criminal and she just can just ignore the orders for for however long or forever, and, and get away with it.
1: I am sure that you were really happy when you finally reunited with your kids. How was that experience for you? And of course, what was your kids' reaction to everything that happened?
0: Well, you know, I mean, it was impossible to gauge that when I first saw them, of course. I tried to be as unemotional as possible because I didn't want... To alarm them in either way, being too sad or being too happy, because I had no way of knowing what was in their heads. And you know, knowing my ex, he could he could have gone either way. you know, he's saying, Well, mommy is sad to see you because she hates you or she's happy to see you because she hates me, or something like that. You know he he has a way of twisting things. Um, he, he's a journalist, so he's incredibly good at that. So I, I had no idea what to expect. I just tried to be as emotionless as possible and <clears throat> just get a feel and a gauge for what they're feeling or what they're thinking. And when I did see them, they were kind of the same. They were kind of like confused and scared and didn't know if they should be happy or sad. Um after some time, I, I, you know, it's it's been about year or two now since I got him back and um, um you know after some time slowly piece by piece I'm finding out what things he had told them and what they were thinking I know he had told them things like um you know that I didn't love them and that's why I wasn't there um he would try to call me because they, they would ask to call me and he would pretend to call me and dial like a wrong number and I wouldn't answer and the kids thought Mommy doesn't love me, she won't answer my calls, things like that. Um um, so you know they started to be okay with you know um not having me there thinking I didn't want them, you know. And after that went on for some time, there was the the hearings. Uh, going on still. And around Christmas time, the judges started to rule in my favor. The, the Japanese judges started to rule in my favor and were saying that, you know, Mr. Ando needs to return the kids. And um, that's when he tried to argue child abuse. And he brought in the best interest attorney, the, the child's attorney, and had the children talk to the child's attorney. And he had the kids, especially the my older one, um, you know, say whatever bad things she could think about me. And she even wrote something like six pages of letters about whatever terrible things she could think of me. Uh and she felt incredibly guilty about that. I know she was deathly afraid that I saw the letters and I would not love her or hate her. And I think she still carries that guilt. Um, the, my younger daughter, she she didn't she tends to not listen. Um, I mean, in a good way, right. I mean, my ex was trying to pressure her, I think too, to write letters. And I think she didn't, or, you know, whatever she wrote was not sufficient, but my, my older daughter wants to make everyone happy. And she got pressured and she tried to write the best terrible letter she could to make her dad happy. And, um, and then when she was returned to me, I could, I could tell, cause I had seen those letters actually already. I don't know if she knew that I saw those letters, but I could. I knew she felt guilty about it, and I didn't want to bring it up with her. Or if I did, I wanted to do it delicately. But you know, um, things didn't work out that way. She stumbled across them on my computer and saw that I had seen them, and she just was full of guilt. And I think that's the sad thing for left behind children, or, or I mean, I should say abducted children. Um, that's the saddest thing for the the abducted children is the guilt. I'm sure. Um, they, when they come to find out that the parent they hated for years was not supposed to be hated. I'm sure that they're just riddled with guilt. And in my case, I was lucky because it, it didn't last that long. She only had that guilt probably for a few months, but I mean, before being able to, to talk it out with me, but um I'm sure she still to this day feels some level of guilt about it. And I feel terrible that she was put in that position because in America, we we had a best interest attorney America, but the the best interest attorney in America doesn't put the children in that sort of position. They just ask the children, you know, um, you know, observe them and ask them how school, you know, what do you think about your classes? What do you like to do for fun? And they try to stay out of, Children's business as much as possible and just evaluate like an observer. but um, in Japan, it's I think it's definitely different. they 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 tend to have more of this influence on them or um, more power, decision power as well, I think, and they get more involved. I think um, I, I I don't know exactly. I don't think I'll ever know exactly how severe it was, you know, for them because I wasn't there and how much they were probed by the Japanese lawyers. But I know, I mean, as soon as my daughter came back and I suggested her to see, uh, like a counselor, a therapist or a doctor, she was so deathly afraid of it because, because she also had to see doctors in Japan who wrote reports Against me, and she said she doesn't. She just hates lawyers and doctors and uh, judges now, and was definitely afraid even to mention and police. She's just definitely afraid of the mention of any of them. And um, it's sad that that they they are being used as pawns for the you know the abducting parents agenda, and that's just it's disgusting that the laws allow it. They enable it. They shouldn't. they shouldn't be structured this way,
1: but it is. All right, Rachel. Now that we have discussed in depth about what happened with your kids and how you guys got reunited, I would like to get slightly deeper into what do you think about Japan as a whole. Uh, did you know about these things before you got married to your husband or you only got exposed to it, uh, you know, abductions, alienation that do happen in Japan after it happened to you?
0: Well, um, I... Okay, so I went to Temple University. It's an American college with a satellite campus in Tokyo. And a part of my required classes was... Um, now, I can't remember the official name. I think it was like racism and... Um, was, there was there some cultural uh, classes and one of them, I think, was racism. And it included... Uh, there was, there was some subject that included, uh, like burakumin. I don't know if you know what that is. And like, I knew, I think burakumin is, uh, like the lower class people in Japanese, uh, in, in Japanese society that had jobs like butchers and things like related to death. And it would be put on their koseki, which is like their family registry. And it would permanently be tied to who they are, even their descendants, you know, where they'd be labeled burakumin for like the rest of eternity right tied to their name and um you know i knew i think is the native japanese people that were in japan uh like native americans were in america they were the Ainu, and they get discriminated as well as the burakumin and um and we even had some subject matter where we went over uh debito arudo debito arudo he has uh we had to study him and um what else and they did bring up um Japanese custody laws and how children tend to get abducted and I remember at the time I didn't really take it seriously I was glad to learn about it and I thought oh well that will never happen to me I don't have to worry about that um and um you know if if I even hook up with the Japanese um and they also talk about how culturally Japanese uh, are unfaithful a lot. There was uh, like even a documentary watch um where they would interview these couples, and the wife would be crying and talking about how her husband's always being unfaithful, but she's okay with it because she has no choice, kind of. And it's just the culture. And I was like, well, I'm not okay with that. So I remember when I met my husband, i, I had these discussions with him. I was like, "Look, I know culturally Japanese men they are unfaithful. I'm not okay with that." He told me he had many past relationships where his his girlfriends were always unfaithful, so he hates that too. And so it's like, "So we're good. We're never going to have to worry about that." And um, and yeah, so we we established way ahead of time that that's a deal breaker, and we were on the same page. But apparently. Um, we weren't on the same page and he was just leading me to believe we were on the same page. And um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I had to, uh, I remember learning about this uh, in class uh, in, in college before meeting my, my husband. And um, you know, I, I think they have, I think the Japanese just have a lot of pride they're very, very prideful. And I used to have uh, a great appreciation for their tendency, like their soft power and their tendency to not be confrontational. But now I can see the ugly side of that. And, you know, um, the way they counterbalance that is by being, you know, two faced and, and lying and ugly behind people's backs. So if, if it was possible to be non confrontational and still resolve conflicts, in a calm way, uh, with maybe an in-between person or that sort of thing, then that maybe that would be perfect or, or my ideal, but instead they, they just do these, these, uh, like ninja devious secret things that are just, um, in their mind, um, you know, uh, you know, taking back Justice, like I, I remember my, I talking to my ex too. He said, cause he would, he would get really angry and start yelling sometimes at people, which not, was not very Japanese of him, but he, he said he used to watch like police dramas in his mind that was enacting justice. Like he would be angry and start yelling because that's what you do. You, you be passionate for, um, for a good cause and things like that. Um, and then and in those cases, it's okay. Um, but that's typically, I guess, also for talking culturally, that that's the man that does it that way, right? The man would then be the one to, to be angry or um, inauthentically angry to try to right a wrong where women will be very passive and maybe run away and secretly right the wrong by uh uh telling untruths or having people do the confrontational part for them right like even um it's funny you know it just makes me reminds me makes me think of the whole um hiring a person to apologize for you like nowhere else in the world can you pay someone to apologize on your behalf but in japan there is an actual service where you can Pay someone to appear on your behalf and apologize, and I think it is oftentimes used for infidelity. Um, so it's just uh, it's unique and it's interesting, and it's um, it does make Japan um, different. But um, there's got to be better ways, in my opinion, more honorable and honest ways to resolve things without confrontation and without lying. I'm sure that this system would work well if they, when they run away, that they were actually running away for legitimate reasons and telling the truth when they were being abused and have somebody confront the abuser on their behalf. But when they don't fact check these, these claims, that's where uh, things go terribly
1: wrong. What do you think the government around the world can do about it? Especially in your case, what can the U.S. do to make sure these abductions that's happening in Japan do stop?
0: Well, I, I think that, uh, I think they should, um, you know, I think they should, sh- they should hold Japan accountable and they should, you know, they should uh, follow through. In, in the mechanisms that we have in place. I mean, the Hague convention is in place and it has mechanisms, but they don't work and they don't enforce them. Right. So they, they're letting Japan purposely make these loopholes. And that's where our countries are failing us. And I think they are aware of it, but just to keep the peace, they let Japan do it their way. and. I, I think, you know, they should hold them accountable, but, um, they, they just won't. I, I've, um, I mean, even in my case, I reached out to the state department and the only thing they did for me was they submitted my case to open a Hague case and gave me a list of lawyers names that I could contact. and. Um, you know, um, even the list was, I I mean, I, I know a couple of those lawyers are actually corrupt on that list. So I, I went and found my own lawyer and not from the list and it worked out for me. Um, so, you know, they, the state department didn't really do anything for me. And I, you know, I reached out to some of my, um, politicians and, um, you know, they, they I met one politician, took time to, to meet with me and discuss it, but you know, um perhaps if there was more time that they could have uh they started to show interest in, in my case, but nothing moved because I got my kids back, I guess, relatively fast. But um, you know, I, I just unless I know what kind of deals they have. In the background, I don't know what to say. You know, I mean, I can't, for whatever reason, they're not, they're not being strict about it. And um, just to maintain relationships, I guess.
1: We know that uh, we have a lot of parents who are listening in who might be going through similar situations as yours. What kind of advice or what kind of suggestions do you have for them as someone who have successfully reunited with their kids?
0: Well, that's difficult. See, each case is unique, really. Um, you know, uh, if there's a chance they could get them back, like in my case, I'd say stay calm. Um, that's the number one thing they use against you is, um, you know, they, they know that not having your kids makes you crazy and they want to use your reaction against you to say you are in fact crazy. Um so you just have to stay calm and it's it's like basically impossible but you have to you have to fake it. <laughs> you have to fake that you're calm because you're not going to be calm. But you just have to fake it so that they cannot claim that you are unstable um you know that you're too unstable to take care of your kids. So that's their number one tactic I think. They know how to manipulate and um use your love against you, your love for your children. They use it against you and they know it and they don't care. That's the disgusting thing about it. But uh, yeah, I mean, that would be my advice. Um, If there's a chance, if there's no chance you're going to get your kids back, then um, you just have to find some way to deal with the pain. And, um, I, I have no idea how to give advice on that because for each, you know, every person it's going to be, the the level of pain is going to be different. And for me, I don't think I could handle that kind of, that level of pain. If I hadn't, got them back. I don't know how I could have handled it. Um, and I wasn't even willing to think about it. Uh, and luckily I didn't have to, but, um, You know, uh, and I hate to even say that there's the possibility of you not getting back because it shouldn't be a possibility, but it is for a lot of parents, especially fathers. And that's why a lot of them have to just disassociate. They just have to, the only way I think is to just try and, you know, uh, cut yourself off from your own feelings. Um, it's like uh, that one parent I, I forget to name, but it's like he said. It's just like a, a living to death, and I think that's accurate. You're just half of you is dead. You have to just let half of you be dead because if you tap into those feelings, you just go nuts. You just go insane, and I don't know how anybody could deal with that. I I did for a little while. I did have to do that, I do remember, especially at Halloween, when they were, they were taken during Halloween, and I, I just had to make myself forget um, that I was missing their Halloween because...
1: Yeah, Rachel, I totally understand your pain. But with that said, right, uh, I have interviewed and talked to a lot of Japanese people and also foreigners who are going through similar situations. And I think you are the first one who have successfully, you know, reunited with your kids. Uh, and that's awesome. If you ask me, even on the podcast, I think you are the first.
0: Yeah, that's what I've heard. Well, yeah, that's what I heard too. But um, no, uh, there has been, I do know someone, I don't know if you are aware, but I do know someone who, after me, trying to copy my case, did get his uh, child back home. Um maybe you can get talk to him too if you want. But um yeah. Uh that's what I heard. It's it's nuts. Uh, I I've heard um my lawyer who is an international, does international cases, said he, as far as you know, I'm the only one he's ever heard of that's gotten their kids back in like fifty years. And uh someone told me they did the math uh and that uh he said that there's he can only um Calculate a three percent return rate, uh, including my case, over the last like fifty years. Um, so yeah, it's it's sad that I'm, you know, that my case is so rare that I'm like one of the only ones. It's very sad. But the ones that do get their kids back, it's it's not publicized. You know, you don't hear about that. So you know, maybe there's a few more than that we know than we know of, but um, it is very very rare um and i do know i do know a few i do i do know a mother uh who got her kids back from japan and this was i think like 20 some years ago um and um and the friends who recently also got his daughter back but it's it's incredibly rare it shouldn't be, and it's never, con- it's never through the hanger, through conventional ways. It's never, they never get their, back, their, their kids back the right way by following the book. They have to do something unconventional.
1: Thank you, Rachel, for spending time with us. I wish you and your kids all the best. Now, I would like to remind everyone that our goal here is to share knowledge with you guys and show that you're not alone in this. With that said, if you need specific legal advice, please get your own independent advice from a qualified legal practitioner. If you're a minor or if you happen to have a difficulty in understanding certain parts of this episode, please approach a responsible adult or someone knowledgeable and ask them for clarifications. We have done our best to make sure that it doesn't offend anyone. And if you have further questions or comments regarding Find My Parent or this interview or this podcast, you can email me at sk at findmyparent.org. If you're someone who got separated from your own parent and would like to find your parent again, please go to www.findmyparent.org and fill out your details. With the help of our smart algorithms and matching technology, we hope to help you find your alienated parent again. If you're part of an NGO or even a private company passionate about this topic, please reach out through the contact us page in FindMyParent.org, and we hope to work together with you. All right, folks, that's it for this week. Speak to you next week. Take care till then. You can be just like me. All you
2: have to do is ask to see your family You have so much to see